All right. Well, let's um, let's get things started, and we'll we'll do the introductions for the uh, panel members from the uh, Terry's owners. So we'll get started. I'll start with myself. Uh, my name is Mark Silverstein. I'm here with my wife Sarah. She's on another screen, um, and we are we've been sailing now aboard our boat for almost nine years. Aaron Terry's for nine years, and we are currently um, involuntarily stuck in the Philippines. We are working our way towards Malaysia. Our kids are, are high school age now, and they're actually enrolled in, in a school in Penang, Malaysia, but we can't get there. So we are stuck in the Philippines waiting for things to change uh, for us. So that's us on our side. Well, uh, Alan and Elizabeth, you guys want to give us your uh, introduction, please? Well, we've been on the Ontarios for three and a half years. Vivesha, formerly Swanee, we're second owners, and she's uh, a 2008, so she's a PDQ from Canada, Ontario's. And um, we're currently in Annapolis, Maryland, getting ready to head around to St. Petersburg, Florida, will be our next major stop. But uh, we've spent the summer in Annapolis. So, yeah. Very good. Well, thank you as usual for uh, jumping on. And uh, Jason, do you guys want to do your introductions, please? You and Gail. Um, so we used to own a book called Two Fish, which actually is still Two Fish. She was built uh, for us in 2013. We were on board for about four and a half years. Um, and we're currently in our apartment in New York City. And that's Gail. <laughs> Hello, Gail. Hey, this is Dave Eber. I'm on uh, Hana, which is an incredible vessel that I just bought. I am so new to this whole adventure. I am based in Annapolis and Baltimore area. I figured I'd grab this bad boy and over the next few years learn, but I am going blue water. So that's why I'm listening to this, this call. See, how do you really make it happen? But right now, in fact, I'm gun calling and Cape Charles. Um, just experiencing the experience. But I will get out to the real blue water soon. Trust me. Thank you. That's great, Dave. Thanks for thanks for jumping in and doing the introduction. Uh, next, next, anybody else? And Terry's that's that's online to jump in, please. Mark, uh, Russ, uh, Catamaran or Salam. Currently, I'm landlocked in Sydney. The boat is in Athens, Greece. Uh, I've had it for ten years. I owned Bella Luna for uh, we sailed five years full time. We sailed from Argentina, where it was of course built. And then after sailing five years, did a little over 20,000 nautical miles and uh, enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah, this is uh, Kevin and Mary Ewing. We're on uh, SV Pike and we are presently in Grenada. We've been, uh, we've had the boat for a little over two years. With the uh, first question, if you can zip, ah, there we go. Perfect. There it is. All right. So the first question that we have for uh, the panel is what is the biggest or what are the biggest challenges faced with blue water sailing? Um, you know, and and the challenges can be anything from just the fear or, or the uh, trepidation of going offshore to um, maybe getting everybody as far as your crew on board to go offshore. So I will uh, open it up and why don't we start um Mary and Kevin, if you guys don't mind, do you want to go ahead and just give us some of your thoughts on the biggest challenges faced with blue water sailing? 
Uh, you know, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest things in my head was safety. Uh, we were lucky enough to have two fish come aboard the boat not long after we bought the boat. So they gave us a lot of information, but we, I was uh, very scared of all the safety things. You know, what are we going to do if, uh, you know, we lose communication and all these different things that we were concerned about. And for the most part, all of that we figured out whether researching on our own or learning it from two fish or you guys or other people that had been doing this for a while on an Antares. So we learned pretty quickly almost that it's not as scary as we thought it was going to be, at least for me. Um, I will say that my biggest concern is uh, should uh, something break or we have a uh, something that we have to deal with during a crossing or uh, offshore and we haven't had anything like that really to deal with yet. So th that's uh, probably my biggest uh, worry, uh, you know, to see what happens when we meet that challenge. Sure. And so, and so have you guys found that um, with the fears that you initially had for um, blue water sailing that you conquered them or do you still have um um some feelings that are that are still of, of a concern and then the challenges faced with doing that well we had uh, on the crossing from uh, virginia to antigua that was a you know 15 1600 nautical mile trip and that one was uh we had weather we had uh chris parker and all those things we were watching it we left we thought at the right time for his uh, instructions but we got caught in a pretty big storm. We didn't move as fast as he told us to move. And uh, we thought we would be okay if we didn't push our engines too hard to get out across the Gulf Stream and across and in safe water and turn right and go south. Well, uh, when we left Virginia, we got caught into, we got across the uh, uh, Gulf Stream, but we got caught in a storm. And so it took about, I don't know, maybe 16 hours of this storm. Hmm. We ended up running with it a little ways towards Bermuda and then it eased up and then we turned back south and it was the best sail ever. It was great, but uh, we were scared at that time. It was, it was When you say pushing your engines, what is that in RPMs? Uh, you know, we were, he told us we needed to be at a certain location by a certain time or date you know that time and so we didn't make that milestone or that marker that route marker that he had told us to make so that we didn't make the coordinates and we got caught in a storm and so we were just trying to keep the engines you know and we i don't know we've been 1800 rpm something like that um so we were you know one engine at a time and so we were just we were actually sailing with another boat buddy boating and they were feeling the same way they were trying to conserve fuel in case we needed to use fuel for later it was just that you know trying to be protective right we should have gone faster we uh, chris we we got caught in the storm because we didn't push hard enough to get away from it and so we got caught in it and actually i think that was a good experience because um we realized it was it, the boat was not going to flip you know that we, there were big waves behind us and it, it felt like a roller coaster but i wasn't concerned we're so it's like a weeble wobble you know it's not going to go upside down so that was a good experience for us overall yeah mark i can send you some video from that uh, <laughs> that trip mary was laying down and i was taking the video and it's pretty rough 
that would be actually actually great to have. We might even want to put that on on the uh, on the uh, YouTube channel at some point. Maybe even we'll add it to this to this video to show that as an overlay. Well, I, I would preface that there's you know bookshelves of stuff on this topic by people that have literally hundreds of thousands of miles. But on my racing days, I have been out in monohulls, which you know we get hit by pretty nasty stuff. We we're getting you know fifties and sixties, and we. If you, anytime you start doing a homemade drogue, it helps a ton. And so you're trying to just run down with the wind and you'll throw your spinnaker sheets off with a fender on it. And the tension on that will be so much if you put your finger on it that it would break your finger very quickly. <laughs> um, when I was sailing up, uh, having left the factory, it's typical you'll leave in a big southerly. And um, we had 40 knots for a couple of days straight. And the waves got in bigger and bigger and bigger. And never did the boat behave in a way that I thought I would want to put a drogue out. She just was floating super high, going down waves, landing bow still pointing up. Uh, it wasn't comfortable in the sense of wanting to go eat you know, a steak, but uh, you had no fear of the boat flipping of the boat, which isn't a reasonable risk on an interior. The risk on a catamaran is that you run over your bow into a wave and, and the boat trips. But I purposely, in those conditions, took the boat at the highest wave I could find. I started smaller and got bigger, but finally the highest wave and did what's the wrong thing to do, which is you turn the boat to get the most acceleration down the wave. That way I could go to sleep knowing if the autopilot did the wrong thing, like it's safe. So we went down the wave, we broke our speed record, we hit 19.8 knots and she landed at the bottom of the wave and totally soft. I mean, not the way Gail would consider soft. She was probably in the cabin not having a great day. But in terms of a sailor, you didn't see the water stack up at the bow. You saw her. And so you knew she was safe. That's the one thing you watch. I, we had a drogue on board because we read that bookshelf of books. I know Mark has a drogue on board as well because he probably read, read the same bookshelf. I was talking to Gail. We're not sure if we did it again, we'd get the drogue. Because you really probably need to see somewhere in 60 to start needing to have a drogue. And if you're seeing 60, where are you sailing? You shouldn't be where, like, you know, normal people want to sail. You're an adventurer now. You're doing something different than, than I have experience with. Sorry, Mark. Yeah, Mark I was just going to jump in and confirm what Jason has said. Um, I, I've been in much rougher weather racing because there you have to go to a destination you don't get a choice and you, you and you you just sail through it so i try and keep out of rough weather in in, in the cruising boat but i have to say that uh, it's extremely stable going downwind in in big you know 40 knots uh, almost a, exact, exactly the same as jason was talking about and and i think it's because of the low profile keels which run so long in the along the bottom of the hull You've got two of them, and they just keep you dead straight down the waves. You know, I've sailed some shocking boats that just wanted to do all sorts of weird things going down waves, but um, the Antares just slides down them perfectly. So um, same report, and I really would like to hear from someone who's been in some really nasty stuff because I haven't been in anything nasty enough to make me feel uncomfortable in the boat. I think, Mark, um, the one... The one situation that we had that was quite um, uh, interesting was when we sailed across the equator 
and we were provisioning in Fortaleza, which is the north end of Brazil. And I talked to a fellow there just to pick his brain and get his advice. And he said to me, you're going to hit three squalls. And they're going to be progressively worse as you, uh, you know, one, two, and three. And I said, well, how do you know that? And he said, well, I've done it 22 times. I've crossed the, uh, I've sailed across the equator. And he was exactly right. We uh, had uh, a three or four, yeah, about a four-day sail till we hit the equator. And then it, the wind just died. And so we were running a little bit of engine just to keep our momentum going. And then all of a sudden, uh, first one was 39 knots. Um, next one was uh, 42, I think, if I remember correctly. And then the last one, the highest was 46. And they just came in and hit us and uh, dumped the, the most amount of rain that I've ever experienced in my life being dumped on. Um, Jason, do you want us to go ahead and, and uh, go through your little small talk about passage making? And you've got some pretty good stuff set up to, to show the group. Can everybody see the slides now? Yeah. Okay, great. So um, I sort of wonder what sick friends I have. You know, I go away for four and a half years, come back, and they just want to know what's the most wind speed you got stuck with. I mean, no questions did I see any wonderful beaches. But so this is our proof, our record. We, uh, we got hit by a squall. It got up to actually 76 knots, but the photo shows 74. It was in the 50s and 60s. And the problem is we were tied to a dock and it was coming from the beam. And so I was quite nervous because I couldn't do any of my sailor tricks. You know, we can't start the engines. That's not going to do anything for me. Um, and so we just held there. Fortunately, I had tied the boat up with a lot of lines earlier. It was supposed to be 15 knots. It was a, a freak event that happened in Eleuthera. Uh, that uh, Chris Parker, who's kind of the, the guru of weather of the region, wrote a couple notes about it thereafter because it was such a special event. Um, so the reason why I bring it up is actually, I will make a guarantee if you buy a brand new Antares that you'll only run into one day of winds over 40 knots, like sustained 40 knots, that in your entire ownership of your boat. It just doesn't happen that much. You know, everybody has a good story, that's for sure. But it just doesn't happen that much. Uh, you can, you know, we crossed, I think the most of the Pacific, we probably didn't even get above 35. Um, and if you come from sailing already and you've been bay sailing, 20 on an Antares is like 10 in the bay. I mean, 20, the boat's moving, life's grand. You know, it's so 30 is kind of, 20 to 30 is what you see a bunch in the Caribbean. And the boat's just for that. Um, so also on this thing is the radar, you know, you can tune a modern radar now so that it will show you when the squalls are coming. They're not invisible at night. They show up quite vividly on the radar and you just do a couple tricks to it. It's quite neat. And, uh, so, you know, we called them schnoz balls. We know how long the schnoz ball was going to last. And, uh, typically the fronting edge of the schnoz ball is where the pressure gradient is. It's where the wind is. So you try to trick the boat and sneak it into the middle. You'll get rained on a lot, but you won't get the horrible pressure. When you're racing, we go for the leading edge of the schnoz ball because we want to get there fast. When we're cruising with Gail, we want to get her comfortable. Um, one of the things that, oh, last thing was I did say earlier that we did 19.8. It looks like 19.6 with our speed through the water record. So it's not a, it's not a lie. Um, night sailing, you know, I think any normal human being is scared of night sailing. Um, 
And it's just a developed thing. You, the more you do it, the more you trust that radar is actually pretty darn good, that AIS, which is this transponder system where ships tell you they're coming, it's very good. And even the best is your eyes work really well at night. No moon, pitch black, any boat that has lights on when you're in mid-ocean, you see them miles away. And over time, you get very good at doing bearings. You know, you read about it in a book, it takes a little time, but then it clicks for you. And instantly you're like, oh, that guy's going in front of me, that guy's going behind, that guy's trouble. And uh, so it takes a lot of the fear out of night sailing. Just as an aside, the, the bigger photo is us sailing with another Antares leaving the factory. So that's somewhere off the coast of Argentina or Brazil. The lower right corner is two fish coming home for the first time. So that little green splotch in the back is the Statue of Liberty. So we, wrote, we arrived at something like three or four in the night. And then the other one's just an anonymous night sail. Um, you'll end up, once you get good at night sailing, you'll like it because you get so many miles done. You're like, oh, a day and a half for sailing and you get a ton more than day sails. A lot of people uh, aren't sailors that come to the Antares. Some are very good sailors, but it's, they might be new to catamarans. So the, the boat comes with the sail guide and you just know when it's blowing this wind speed and that wind angle, you put up those sails and you know you're safe. So you don't have any tension amongst the crew because you're like, I'm on the book, we're good. Now the book, the factory will tell you is very conservative. So as you get more used to your boat, you're like, oh, I'm going one square beyond the book. But initially, you know, year one, uh, it was really good for us to have the book. Can I fix it at sea? So I came from the sailing side, so that part wasn't so scary. In terms of fix it, I mean, there's plenty of Antares owners that have done amazing stuff, so probably all the way up to building a house. I, I, I knew nothing about that stuff, a complete and utter fix it idiot. And so, you know, I loved the fact that boat had two of everything. Um, we were just about to leave Fiji. Fiji and Gail was just finishing up the dishes and the water wasn't, didn't run anymore. And so uh, the boat has all the water obviously in the hulls in these, these aluminum tanks and we didn't have a manual foot pump. So that's like all of our water. We, you know, of course we have plenty of bottled water on board and drinks and stuff like that. But you're like, wow, this seems like pretty bad. Um, and so I took the pump out, installed the replacement pump. That sounds like a tough job, but if you've ever wired up speakers in college, it's the same level of difficulty. You find the plus, you find the minus, it's already there, it's already wired the correct way. We just dropped the new pump in and it was working better, but not perfect. So then I took out the filter. There's a filter, there's a lot of filters so the water on the boat tastes great. And I took this filter out and I discovered that I'd been changing it over the last three years and I kept leaving a little O-ring at the bottom. And so it had run out of space so I couldn't close the filter anymore and it was letting air into the system. So by the way, nothing broke on my boat, just user stupidity. Um, this is a great photo. This is right in the beginning, the typically the longest sail a cruiser doing the, um, the coconut run is going to do is from the Galapagos to the Marquesas. There's nothing in between, so you get about 3,000 miles. And we're with uh, another Antares, uh, and they're right behind us here. Behind is a very important point. Um, and you can see underneath the hull, and there's a discussion around this thing called bridge deck clearance. Antares relatively is a more narrow boat than some of the, the boats in her class. 
And the reason for it isn't that they wouldn't want to give you a bigger room. They'd love to give you a bigger room, but because they don't want those waves, you see how they're not hitting the bottom of the, the boat, the bridge deck? That creates bridge deck slap. All catamarans get bridge deck slap at some wave height and some boat speed, but the longer you can wait for that, the better, the, the fewer uh, car collisions you'll have. It's not a very comfortable moment. Um, and so the Antares we found was, had a lot less bridge deck slap than, than some other boats. And then the final thing is after you get over being sort of uh, scared of night sailing, scared of something breaking, uh, scared of maybe some of the navigation stuff, um, you start realizing it's a lot of fun. And it's even more fun if you bring on other sailors, maybe sailors that have more experience than you or different experience than you. And uh, we, we just, we brought on lots of different people invited to come on our boat. Uh, the, the larger photo uh, is us crossing the equator for the second time. And uh, they're friends of ours. Uh, and we obviously had a big sort of crossing party. The photo on the right, you know, just because we talked about all this heavy wind stuff. Well, it's not uncommon that you'll run into zero wind and you become a motorboat. This is arriving in the Galapagos Islands. And there is 0, 0.0 knots of wind. And they have a whole bunch of rays there. And what they like to do in light air is go and put like one fin out of the water. And to me, at first glance, it looked like a complete like shark infestation. And I was almost wondering, do we have to get helicoptered out or something like that? We're gonna get attacked by Sharknado. But we were safe. Um, and uh, the bottom photo is sailing off the coast of Brazil. They were a couple that joined us that had circumnavigated in a, an Antares, a PDQ, uh, a couple years up, and they were kind enough to sail uh, a big chunk of the Brazil coast with us. And uh, we had obviously our, our big pink spinnaker cruising as we headed uh, north. That's it, Mark. Sorry to take up so much time, but um, I had a lot to say, I guess. Uh, any lessons learned or advice to new sailors? Who wants to tackle that one first? Mark, you back? Sure. Yeah, I'm back. I I've been on and off here with an internet connection. Um, yeah, any lessons learned or advice to new sailors? I would say uh, several things. Number one, one of the things that happened to us on our crossing um, from the from uh, Galapagos to the to French Polynesia is we lost our autopilot. Our, we lost our autopilot, and um, that's a big deal, especially if you sail shorthanded like we do. Uh, the good news was we were able to after a period of time and stress of hand steering, get it sorted out. But after that experience, I said, you know what? We sail shorthanded as a family um, and our autopilot is our third crew member. So we installed a second autopilot and I, I would still advise people if you're gonna be doing long passages, day sailing or overnights, not a big deal. Um, 3000 nautical miles, a pretty big deal. So we've got two autopilots on board, redundancy, just, just to make sure that was okay. Um, other advice that we've already touched on, you know, it's very easy to become, to just feel safe and probably, I wouldn't say too safe, but just feel really comfortable with the boat and your, your, your um, sail plans that you tend to not uh, reef enough. And uh, that's something that can certainly bite you. We've blown through a sail because of that, we've probably pushed the limits, especially when you get that testosterone going of, of it's a race. Whenever there's more than one, 
and boat on the water and, and there usually can be, you want to race. And, you know, we've done our fair share of racing on the water and pushing the boat. And um, sometimes it doesn't always end so well. If not something breaking, uh, perhaps uh, some people being upset on board that we are going too fast and um, so on and so forth. Um, but that's about it. I mean, I think that, you know, yeah, I'd, also I'd what like we to do, speak to that a little ahead. bit, actually. Yeah, go ahead. Can I speak up? I've been quiet, but I, I think yeah. that there's a big um, aspect to offshore cruising that nobody has really talked much about. And it's it's probably the biggest underlying factor for me. And that's just the psychological challenge um, of leaving shore, of seeing the seeing the land go bye bye, of um, just knowing that you have you have safety measures, but knowing that your mind can get the best of you when you go offshore. And I think that as for new sailors, I would say um, just keep those thoughts in check. I think it was really helpful for me when Mark would say, when I would voice my fears and Mark would say, okay, what if this happens? What are we gonna do? And just walk through those, not try to push them away, but really walk through those fears and educate yourself and put yourself in situations, practice. Um, I think with somebody was talking about nasty weather earlier and I asked what's nasty weather because I feel like as, you're, as you gain experience sailing, you get, you kind of build up this resilience to nasty weather almost to a, um, it's, you become too comfortable. Um, and so you have to be careful about that too. But um, I think it's all relative. And as you sail and as you put yourself in different situations and as things break on a boat as they're going to do, um, you just feel, you build up a bit of grit. And I just think that you should be patient with your psychological um, fears about sailing offshore. That's good. Thank you guys uh, for, for the comments. I want to get to a couple of the questions here on the chat that people have asked and uh, discuss it. So we've got a question here from Nick. He said, how does the boat heave to? Anyone consider that as a storm tactic, tactic or usually keep running? We, we loved heaving too. I mean, we used it a lot. Um, it's much easier on an Antares than it is on say a racing monohull. Um, she naturally wants to drift across her keels. Um, and then the other thing is you don't have to do the classic heave too. Just if you don't know what it is, is you tack the boat without letting the sail go across the Genoa. And then you ease the main with the helm doing the opposite direction. And so it's this sort of iterative process typically on a monohull. On an Antares, I just found I sort of do it and then I'd punch in the autopilot and the autopilot would steer me heave too. And so it didn't require that sort of extra effort that it did back on like a race boat. Um, it's a great way uh, to do a man over board drill. So we were in the mid twenties and my friend lost his hat off the coast of Brazil. And so we had to go back, get it because it was a new hat. And it was a great, you know, it was good proper, maybe two, three meters sea going back to get that hat. It was a real form of practice and you just drift down to it. And then to get that last fine tune, we just used our engines and it was the easiest man overboard technique. And that became kind of our foundation for man overboard rather than the classic figure eight. Mm. Heave to drift to the subject, use your final approach engines when you know they're clear of all ropes. 
I would like to hear from Gail, Miss Planner Extraordinaire, on, I mean, one of the big aspects, not from a safety aspect, but just from feeding people and keeping the boat well provisioned. How do you plan for a long passage? Give us some of your tips. Well, it's funny, Sarah, that you should say that because the first time we were going to go on a long passage, I actually went to the field trip vlog. <laughs> you had the table of what the meals were going to be sort of yeah. every night on that. And I actually started off using that as my thoughts. So I'm a, I'm a big spreadsheet person, um, as I'm sure a lot of people on this call are. So I would try and calculate how many people do we have. And the, it's the shopping that's probably, you're going on a two week passage, three week passage, it's the shopping that's the most um, stressful because you end up going to the supermarket and having like two shopping carts worth of things that you're buying. Um, but mm -hmm. just, you know, taking it, planning it, counting how many things you need. And without a doubt, no matter who you are, you're gonna have too much food actually, because you're always, over prepared. Now, I, um, I know there's a couple of seasickness people um, on this call. I get seasick using the Graviton in the gym. So I'm at the extreme end of that. So I knew Jason for the most part. So I knew that we were going to have to do something. So the other thing that I would do is I would cook meals and freeze them in like single or double serving sizes and put them in the freezer. And we would have two weeks worth of protein meals in the freezer before we went on passage because I would just eat saltines and peanut butter. So, um, you know, it's actually easier than, than you would think after you've done it the first time. And I'm actually during this sort of COVID-y type thing, uh, I've used those skills here when you go to the supermarket less frequently. I've, I was a person who always went down the street and decided what I wanted that day to make for dinner. So it was a big change. Um, and I would say just, you know, making lists, multiplying and um, thinking what you like to eat. So, you know, it's not, I don't have uh, much before that, you know, after, after that. And you just have got to be really adaptive, like lasagna. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the end, I was making lasagna with cottage cheese if I was lucky. So <laughs> you just have to be creative and, and not like stick to what you're doing. Sorry, space. Uh, oh, spare parts was a big thing for me, actually. Um, I was always worried about running out of thing, of spare parts more than food. Like, so we always had things like joker valves and extra oil filters, extra fuel filters, extra water filters. Um, and that also, I would keep a spreadsheet of how many do we have, where do we buy them, um, et cetera. So sort of I lived the spreadsheet lifestyle on the boat. Um, I just got a question here from Nick. He said, uh, for the cruising couples, what watch schedules do you use on passage? Um, I'll jump in first and just say that on field trip, it took us a while to figure out the right groove for us. But one of the things that, you know, kind of was our, our uh, guiding force is we have two kids on board. And during the day, the kids are up and about. And uh, Sarah was at some point doing homeschooling as well on some of the sailing. So our schedule was as follows, um, and it still and it still stands today. I have the midnight to 6 a.m. shift. I love sailing at night. I just, I enjoy night sailing. So I have the midnight to six, and then Sarah does uh, six to nine. I do uh, nine to 12, and then we do 12 to 
12 to three, three to six, and then we start all over again um, as we go around as we go around the clock with me doing in particular a six hour stretch from midnight to six to give Sarah time to rest. Alan Elizabeth, yeah. Yeah, we have a, um, I'm a natural night person and he's a morning person. So our watch schedule kind of conforms to what our body clocks like to do. And um, so my watch starts at nine. We finish dinner, finish up everything. He goes to bed at nine and he sleeps until he wakes up. There's not a set time because it's really difficult. You know, when you're in a good REM sleep, you don't want that three hours to end. And it's like, now I got to wake up right in the middle of a dead sleep. Instead, he wakes up when he wakes up, whether it's, you know, one o'clock, one thirty, two o'clock, that's fine with the agreement that if I need him to get up, I'll wake him up. The same thing, you know, knock on the hatch, say, hey, you got to get up. But otherwise it's when he wakes up and then I go to bed and sleep until I wake up in the morning, which is right about when the sun is coming up. And so it, it's a much more natural schedule that, that fits for us rather than trying to set to a, to a particular schedule. Thanks, that's good. Uh, uh, anybody else want to weigh in on your watch schedules? Oh, I will mention one thing to you. If there's four yeah. of you on board, this is a trip I didn't do with Elizabeth, but it was four of us coming back from Hawaii to San Francisco. And we had a watch schedule that was the best four-man watch schedule I have ever heard of. We did, we did four on, four hours on during the day and three hours on at night and rotated around. And every third day you had 25 hours off. I'd have to lay it out again and I, I'd be happy to. I've got it somewhere. Anybody who's interested, I can show you, lay it out so you can see how it worked. But where it really came into play was when we got into about 25 hours of 25 knot winds and had to go two on at a time for a half hour each on the wheel. We go two, two men up for two hours and you go half on and then you sit in the cockpit for a half, you know. It was more than 25, but it was like 45. And anyhow, none of us was was too tired because we had had that relaxing every every fourth day you had the day off and we were all in great shape to go through this you know day and a half two days of storm with with nobody being overtired that's good yeah thanks thanks for that um anybody else have anything yeah. else to jump in yeah, yeah Mark, I, I was just going to say that I, I would um it's good to have a plan but i think um it's most important to flex that plan depending on what happens around you. Like um, in, in my case, I'm more experienced. So if the weather's getting really bad, I'm doing a lot of watch keeping, but I've got to keep myself um, sharp enough uh, because if I go down, then, then things are in, in big trouble. Um, and also people get sick and different things happen. So you, you've just got to flex that plan to look after everyone. Um, because if you do that, then you'll be fine. I'd like to uh, wrap it up by first of all saying thank you. <laughs> Jason's laughing. <laughs> for saying thank you for everybody that, that showed up uh, to ask questions and for the interior owners to, uh, to field them. I definitely want to um, thank Jason in particular. Jason's really been an all-star on this, helping uh, keep this whole thing going, adding good content. And the, the slideshow presentation, I thought worked, worked great. Jason with the photos, that was a really good, well done thing. Thanks for doing that. And for everybody else that's joined in, um, please feel free to uh, shoot any, any more questions to us. Um, our next call will be in two weeks. Um, we're working on the topic. We have one already identified, but 
we've gotten some other questions coming in that we might mix it up a little bit more as far as the next topic, but uh, we will have another call in two weeks uh, on another topic about sailing and uh, what we believe to be uh, living the dream um, on the Ontario's catamaran. So we uh, thank everybody for your participation.